2: This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. you it, young man,
0: you've got it! The hottest man in
2: the land! DIY and How Studios presents... The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. I have a culture. technology, wow. Look at that. and rock and, roll.
0: At rock and roll,
2: and now, on with the show. All right, you' give it to me. Give it to me. i bring no big guitars in
1: here for you. One, two, three, four. Right. Hello, friends, and welcome. This is episode six of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. biggest, best thing in American popular music in the early and mid-1960s, Bowtown, and the emergence of soul music. We touched on this in episode 4 when we introduced James Brown. Now we're going to dig a little deeper. We will have more to say about soul music in later episodes too, so if you think we missed something, well, come on back. Chances are we'll get to it. There is a lot to say. The artists and songs are flat-out awesome, and the social and cultural impacts are enormous. 60s soul music was more than just a good time. It influenced, and was influenced by, two parallel movements in American life, women's liberation and the African-American struggle for equality. Folk music, as we discussed in our last episode, was important as well, but the music of black American 60s, gospel, R&B, and soul music was the pulse, the beating heart, the cadence call of the march. The movement informed the music, and the music helped shape the movement. We feel these songs were the sound of change, and the songs themselves were change, change in how Americans see and hear ourselves and each other. Let us know how you see it. Tell us what you think about any of our shows and what you'd like us to discuss in later episodes. Throw your bouquets, your bricks, your occasional unhinged rants right to us at the Rock and Roll Archaeology webpage. By the way, it's spanking brand new, so you might want to take a look. And all of our social information can now be found there. So if you are not already... Get with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We do want you to continue to call us with your personal stories of rock and roll archaeology at 650-822-7625. Finally, do remember to review and share us on iTunes or wherever you are downloading the episodes. So let's get to it right now. This is Episode 6. Soul Sisters. Broadway in Manhattan 799 7th Avenue in the big room the main recording studio of Columbia Records it's late October 1963 autumn in New York City in the control booth the soft hum of quiet intent activity look around a custom mixing console Ampex tape decks Telefunken microphones, the best equipment money can buy. On the other side of the glass, charts are carefully distributed to top-notch session musicians, warmed up and ready to play. This is Columbia, big time, top of the line, nothing but the best. Running the session is a big-name producer, Bobby Scott. But in the midst of all this smooth, quiet professionalism, It's easy to imagine that Bobby has a tense, nervous churning in his gut. The pressure is on. He's been brought in to try to jumpstart the career of another of John Hammond's amazing discoveries. A massively talented young singer, who so far was just a big disappointment at Columbia, Aretha Franklin. It wasn't for lack of trying. Aretha was as determined and hardworking as she was talented. Columbia believed in Aretha And invested heavily in her. But three years into the six year deal she signed while still a teenager, it just wasn't clicking. The recording showed flashes of brilliance, and when Aretha performed live, she killed it. But the vinyl just sat on the shelves. sessions with Scott at the helm just produced more of the same. The final repertoire, like most everything Aretha sang on Columbia, seemed to be moving in many directions at once, wrote David Ritz in his 2014 biography, Respect, The Life of Aretha Franklin. In terms of theme or cohesion of style, we had lost our way, Bobby Scott said about those sessions in an interview with Ritz years later. Columbia and Aretha had been reduced to throwing everything at the wall and hoping something would stick. For three more years, the frustration would continue with a revolving door cast of top producers, songwriters, and session musicians. Aretha Franklin released eight albums during her six years with Columbia. All of them were superbly performed and produced and aggressively marketed. But radio programmers and the record-buying public just yawned and moved along. By the time she finished her contract with Columbia in 1966, Aretha had not only failed to generate a profit, she was almost $100,000 in the hole. That's close to $1 000, 000 in 2015 dollars. It was an epic fail. Columbia retained this unbelievable one in a billion talent and put all the expertise money could buy behind her and they got less than nothing for their investment. Decades later, John Hammond would sum up Aretha's time at Columbia. I cherish the records we made together, but finally, Columbia was a white company that misunderstood her genius. Nowadays, with the benefit of hindsight, we can shake our heads and wonder What the hell were they thinking when we look at Columbia's mishandling of Aretha Franklin's musical career in her early years? But that's a little too easy. Aretha was just unprecedented in so many ways. It's understandable that nobody really knew what to do with her at first. John Hammond's comments about the disconnect between Columbia's management and their talented young artist is astute, but that is just one layer one aspect of it. Aretha was, still is, enigmatic, complicated, flat-out contradictory at times, a consummate professional on stage and in studio, but her personal life was nothing but a big ol' hot mess. A shy, withdrawn preacher's daughter, seemingly gifted by God above with a high-wattage thunderbolt shot straight to her voice box— An 18-year-old woman possessed of a worldliness, even a world-weariness, that was way beyond her years. It turned out the thing to do was embrace those contradictions, live with those complexities, and let Aretha be Aretha. We'll get to that, but let's step back a bit here and look at a larger issue this is a good place to do it because American soul music in the early and mid-60s is where we finally can spot the first powerful, successful women performers. And women in rock is a great story that we will grow and develop in further episodes. Now, in earlier episodes, we found urgent undercurrents churning away beneath the placid conformist surface of American life. In the late 50s and early 60s, The dam burst, and these currents flowed, loud and sudden, out into the larger culture. The story of how these undercurrents joined the mainstream is, in large part, the story of rock and roll.
2: A youth culture was emerging that would challenge many of the social, political, and sexual norms of the past, and the feminist movement was on the horizon. In 1960, when the FDA approved the pill, the forces swirling around its arrival clashed in thunderous clamor.
1: The University of Minnesota historian Elaine Tyler May wrote that, part of the introduction to her 2010 book, America and the Pill, A History of Promise, Peril, and Liberation. Discussing the promise and the peril is something we will leave to Professor May, but since this show is about rock and roll, well, we're more than happy to discuss the liberation part. Simply put, for millions of American women, the pill, with all its implications and impacts on sexuality, marriage, family life, it made liberation possible. The second wave of feminism begins here. The first wave focused on the legal basics, the right to vote and tone own property. The second wave broadened the definition to include the struggle for social equality, educational and workplace equality, and reproductive freedom. The pill wasn't the only factor, but it was a big catalyst for big change. It's a big topic. We've linked to some of the foundational books in the show notes. We bring it up, and we encourage you to learn more about feminism, because today we meet a couple of trailblazing women. We think rock and roll is about liberation, about being yourself and expressing yourself. We also think rock and roll influences the larger society, and the larger society influences rock and roll. That's really our whole thing right there, thinking and talking about those two big ideas. This is a
0: man's word! This is a man's word! But it wouldn't be nothing.
1: Love and due respect to James Brown, but today we'll attempt a very different perspective a feminist perspective. We hinted at this earlier, let's just go ahead now and make it explicit. And we want to say this too we are not shoehorning some commentary about feminism into a rock and roll show. This is entirely driven by the story. Aretha, who we have just met, and Diana Ross, achieved success and recognition beyond that of any woman to this point in time. That's just a fact. These two broke new ground for women. And taking a feminist slant is consistent with the mission of our show. Use different perspectives. Ask unusual questions. So enough commentary. We'll resume our story now. Let's move on from the glittering spires of Manhattan to a modest two-story building on South Grand Avenue in Detroit, sandwiched in between a beauty shop and a funeral parlor. modest sign out front, Hittsville, USA, June 1964. It's the Friday morning product evaluation meeting, and Barry Gordy, the owner and president of Motown Records, is trying to put a brave face on things. Motown's biggest selling artist, Mary Wells, was determined to leave the label. She hadn't been in the studio in many weeks, and nobody knew whether she would be back at all. Gordy had offered Wells a much better deal going forward, but she wanted back royalties. The negotiating impasse quickly turned into a bitter legal dispute. Mary Wells had recorded her last notes at Hitsville. In early 65, she signed with a major label. I Remember, back then Motown was still a small indie label, and times were not good for small indie labels. If you listened to episode four of our show, you already know the big six, the corporate labels, had been slow to catch on, but now they were fully engaged in the business of making and selling rock, pop, and R&B records, and the bigs were squashing indie labels one after the other. Now right here, let's also note that as a business, Motown was in uncharted territory. It was pretty much unprecedented a black-owned and operated company that very successfully marketed its products to white America. Not a lot of that going on in 1964. Barry Gordy has his critics and detractors, and some of them have good points to make. But it must be said, the audacity, the hard work, the vision that he showed in building Motown Records is a great American success story, something worthy of sincere admiration. Motown's achievement was something that you would have to say on paper was impossible. They took black music and beamed it directly to the white American teenager. That's the Atlantic Records exec, Jerry Wexler, quoted in Peter Grolnick's fine 2012 book, Sweet Soul Music, Rhythm and Blues, and the Southern Dream of Freedom. Back to the Hitsville offices. Motown had an impressive roster of young talent, but like many small companies, then and now, they were undercapitalized. Motown lived from paycheck to paycheck. Mary Wells was the tentpole, their biggest and most consistent earner. The loss of income from her departure could very well bring the whole thing crashing down. Barry Gordy's right-hand man, Smokey Robinson, was keenly aware of this. Smokey had written and produced Mary's biggest hits, including My Guy, the number one song in America at that moment. Here's Barry Gordy from his 1994 autobiography, To Be Loved.
2: With Mary Wells leaving, a soul and air had settled over Hitsville. We all took it hard, but Smokey took it the worst. Nothing's changed, I said. No big deal. I lied.
1: Again, hindsight is our friend here. Knowing what we know now, it seems absurd for these two guys to be even slightly concerned. In the summer and fall of 1964, Motown absolutely blew up. Overnight, Motown went from struggling indie label to the world-renowned hit factory that produced smash after smash after smash. Hit Factory is an apt description for the Motown Record Company in the 1960s, and we are not the first to use that term. Barry Gordy took all the various functions and jobs of music making and integrated them. Integrated in the racial and cultural sense, and integrated in the business sense. Artist development, songwriting and production, publishing, marketing, distribution, tour management, everything, all under one roof. But we want to talk more about the product that came off that assembly line. Mostly, the assembly line at Hitsville cranked out the fun. Early Motown songs are just so much fun. almost utopian, isn't it? An invitation across the nation, a hope worth having where all we need is music, sweet music, and disputes and differences will dissolve. Now, it's been said that genres and categories are not for musicians, but rather for critics. Podcasters too, I suppose. But labels can be useful just the same. So indulge us when we assert that Motown music was not, strictly speaking, soul music, but more of a pop-oriented first cousin to soul music. Pop music, and it popped all right, driving bass lines and a cracking snare drum, doubled up with tambourines and hand claps, call and response interplay between the lead singer and the backup vocalists. Infectious hooks, catchy sing along choruses, and great melodies. Barry Gordy had his producers mix down songs using small speakers, similar to the ones used in the car radios of the time, and Motown tunes would just jump out of those little speakers. Funk Brothers, Motown's house band throughout the 60s, played on more top ten pop hits than Elvis, more than the Beatles, or the Rolling Stones, more than the Beach Boys, combined. These great musicians are profiled in detail in the excellent 2002 documentary, Standing in the Shadows of Motown. If you're like us and you just love Motown music, go have a look. The Sound of Young America. Barry Gordy printed that right on the labels of the umpteen million Motown 45s sold to American teens in the 1960s. Implicit in that slogan is sunny optimism, a sense of fun and togetherness. That will change later in the decade. The times will get angrier, and Motown's sound will get tougher. But for now, Motown is all about the fun. And even Motown's songs about heartbreak and love gone bad feel hooky and upbeat, like this 1964 summer hit that broke out the Supremes, and their lead vocalist, the first female pop superstar, Diana Ross. shift here to a new topic. I promise you we will quickly wrap the discussion back around to great music and great musicians, and hopefully you will get why we want to make this point at this time. Two people of similar temperament and ability, both smart and talented, both highly ambitious, even ruthless at times, and both of these people are, to no small degree, lucky, fortunate. As a consequence, they both achieve great success. The field of endeavor can be most anything. The arts, the business world, politics. One gets called tough and decisive, a visionary, a driven leader. The other one is a woman, and she gets called a bitch.
0: Through the mirror of mind.
1: Just to let that idea settle in, we put a little music in that spot, and those two musical bookends we just played are context. They tell a little story. The first clip is Where Did Our Love Go, the 1964 breakthrough hit for The Supremes. The second one is Reflections, a 1967 hit by Diana Ross and The Supremes. We bring this up at this particular spot because of this interesting dichotomy we found as we researched the life and musical career of Diana Ross. She was the first female pop superstar and for nearly two decades she was the biggest selling African-American artist in history right on through the early 1980s. Musically and culturally she's a very important story. So naturally over the years there have been numerous biographies of her Many tell all accounts from people who worked with her. And of course, a big part of her story is how she vaulted over the other two Supremes, Mary Wilson and Florence Ballard. Interesting, what we see is that nearly all accounts of Diana fall into two distinct, diametrically opposed groups worshipful, breathless stories of her talent and accomplishments, or brutally harsh critiques of her fierce ambition and perfectionism. The truth lies somewhere near the middle, but we tend to come down on Diana's side a little more. And we do that because of context, because of where American women were in 1964, and because an ambitious, hard charging woman, then and now, doesn't get the benefit of the doubt like a man would. So we are extending that benefit to Diana Ross. We will have much more to say about Motown in later episodes, but right now, let's head south. Deep South to the Florence, Alabama, musical enterprises, Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where we will meet the
2: Swampers. Mustang,
1: down, look around the joint, feel the push and pull of that nasty groove. It's a bracing contrast with that catchy ear candy coming out of Bowtown. <laughs> this ain't the sound of young America. This here is the soundtrack for some grown-up fun. there was another sound coming out of Alabama in those times, and it had nothing to do with fun of any kind.
0: ...and the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever.
1: That's the inaugural speech of Alabama's governor at that time, George Wallace elected just a few months earlier on a platform of fierce, unyielding resistance to any progress on civil rights. In 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, which outlawed discrimination based on race, color, sex, or national origin. It was signed into law by President Lyndon Bain Johnson, who later that same year won re-election in a crushing landslide victory over Barry Goldwater. Goldwater made his opposition to the Civil Rights Act one of his central campaign issues. For most Americans, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 represented progress, a step forward that inspired hope. To many Southerners, the new laws only inspired a hardening of racist attitudes. And LBJ didn't win everywhere in November of 64. In Alabama and the rest of the Deep South, it was a landslide in the other direction. And it's worth noting that political realignment persists to this very day. And on the coasts and in the northern industrial cities, where so many African Americans had migrated over the previous two decades, there was a growing impatience. Discrimination outside the South wasn't quite as overt nasty, perhaps, but... It was still very real and felt every day. After three centuries of struggle, the smell of freedom was in the air. Folks were tired of the excuses, fed up with the lack of follow-through on all the high-minded promises. In August of 1965, South Central Los Angeles exploded. The Watts riots were shocking, unsettling, and just a sample of things to come. City after city exploded over the next four American summers, each riot seemingly worse than the last. But in the friendly confines of the recording studio at Muscle Shoals, there was an admirable, hopeful camaraderie. The Swampers, five white southerners, country boys, dropped in behind a black man from the big city, Wilson Pickett, and gave his song Swing and Punch.
0: Say
2: it one time. But in the studio, we got away from all that. You just worked together, you never thought about who was white, who was black. You thought about the common thing, and now it's the music.
1: That's a fame artist from that era, blues singer Clarence Carter, quoted in Muscle Shoals a 2013 documentary by Greg Camelier. Easygoing, joyous collaboration, and it gave the songs the sound of change. And once they hit the radio in 10,000 American towns, the songs themselves were change. It's a humane and hopeful idea, and a chord we will gladly sound. But we must also make the somber, troubling observation that... America continues to struggle with these very same issues 50 years hence. Change, real change, never comes quick. And right outside those studio walls, a tense and angry nation awaited the fire next time. You
0: will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised.
1: The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox and four parts without commercials. Once soul music emerged from the underground, it accompanied the civil rights movement almost step by step. Its success directly reflecting the giant strides that integration was making. Its popularity almost a mere image of the social changes that were taking place. That's another quote from Peter Grolnick's book, Sweet Soul Music, Rhythm and Blues and the Southern Dream of Freedom. A mere image of the social changes taking place. Hold on to that idea. It is appealing to think that the music really could. As Martha Rees so hopefully sang, invite a nation to dissolve the divisions and differences. But sometimes the world gets in the way. Fear and suspicion will push aside hope and cooperation. So it's a year and a half later, January 1967. We're still in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Another high-pressure, high-stakes recording session for Aretha Franklin, is about to get underway. In late 1966, Aretha wrapped up her recording contract with Columbia. Jerry Wexler, the effusive, fast-talking VP of Atlantic Records, swooped right on in. From Wexler's autobiography.
2: When Aretha arrived in Atlantic,
1: she was 25 years old, with a sound feeling and so experience as someone much older. She fit into the matrix of music
2: I had always worked with, Songs expressing adult emotions. Aretha didn't come to us to be made over or refashioned. She was searching for herself. In that regard, I might have helped.
1: I urged Aretha to be Aretha. Aretha and her husband-slash-manager Ted White signed with Wexler and Atlantic. Ted and Aretha married in 1961. Put bluntly, Ted White was a player. A pimp. He was good at it, smart and polished. His pimp game was mostly emotional and psychological manipulation, but when that didn't work, he would raise a hand. Aretha caught numerous beatings from Ted. This excuses none of the foregoing, but Ted could be a capable manager when it suited him. He worked hard on Aretha's behalf and advanced her career. And even folks who couldn't stand Ted acknowledged that he was the first to push her to write her own songs. Now, Aretha had yet to make a smash record, but she made good money out on the road. Well, she made Ted White good money out on the road, and she was becoming unhappy about that arrangement. By late 1966, things between Aretha and Ted were about to boil over. Jerry Wexler had some inkling of all this, and he sensed that it was very much in Aretha's interest, personally and professionally, for her to get out from under Ted White and let Aretha be Aretha. For some time, Wex had been sending Atlantic R&B artists like Wilson Pickett, south to Muscle Shoals, to work with Rick Hall, the owner of Fame Studios. Rick was driven and temperamental, a nice way of saying he could be a world-class prick at times. He was a hard-drinking good old boy with old-school Southern mannerisms. Tough and demanding, but not at all a bigot or a racist. Rick Hall was a fair-minded man and a highly competent engineer and producer with a growing reputation, and he had the swampers for a housepan. Rick had worked with Wilson Pickett the previous year, It was an unlikely pairing, two stubborn, hot-headed guys from wildly different backgrounds. But they made it work, and those sessions produced a smash album for Wilson Pickett. Aretha loved Wilson Pickett and loved his latest album. So Wax booked Rick Hall in his studio for a week, and he accompanied Aretha Franklin and Ted White to Florence, Alabama. One crucial thing Rick neglected to do. To allay some of Ted's misgivings about working in the Deep South, Wexler asked Rick Hall to hire an all-black horn section. He suggested the Memphis Horns, a top-notch outfit Wex had worked with before. Instead, Rick Hall brought in some local guys. Jerry Wexler introduced Miss Franklin, who softly and politely asked if she could sit at the piano. Spooner Oldham moved over to the electric piano and organ. And Aretha sat down and sketched out the song for the Swampers, singing a guide vocal to show the boys where she wanted some punch and emphasis. It was a bit awkward at first, but then Spooner came up with a spiffy gospel-inspired riff to open the song, and off they went. The basic track came together quickly. Then, while everyone watched in quiet awe, Aretha went into the booth and nailed the lead vocal in less than an hour. I Never Loved A Man The Way I Love You is the title cut from Aretha Franklin's 10th album, her first with Atlantic. That album was, still is, an utter smash, a blockbuster, the coronation of the Queen of Soul. In Aretha's own telling, the turning point of her career, I Never Loved A Man has stood the test of time. In 2002, Rolling Stone magazine published Women in Rock 50 Essential Albums. Aretha's Atlantic debut comes in at number one on that list. We don't always agree with Rolling Stone, but we'll absolutely go along with that particular assessment.
2: We were all worried she might have qualms about playing with a white rhythm section, but when we all got groove grooving, she loved it. She knew that, color be damned, we were all coming from the same place. To the last man, we realized we were watching the birth of a superstar.
1: That's Swampers guitarist Jimmy Johnson, quoted in the 2014 biography, Respect the Life of Aretha Franklin by David Ritz. It's a common refrain. Over and over you read and hear stories like this from musicians who worked with Aretha. Peter Grolnick, once again. Aretha cast off the confining stays of her long apprenticeship and gave herself over to the ecstasy of her music.
2: She had absorbed all the lessons and was
1: now prepared to transcend them. So let's take a minute here and talk about the incredible one-in-a-billion voice that Aretha possessed, the instrument of her transcendence. Now, a musicologist would summarize Aretha Franklin as a powerhouse mezzo-soprano with a a three-and-a-half-octave range. The control and power she displays in the middle part of her range the belting range, is matched by only a handful of singers in all of recorded music and exceeded by none. As we've said before in this podcast, we're not experts or insiders, we're fans. That's our perspective. That said, I've noticed something about Aretha's singing, which I hope you will find compelling and interesting. Rock instruments, especially electric guitar, have a big fat sound that covers a broad chunk of the audio spectrum. It's freaking awesome. If you're a guitarist hearing this, I'm sure you won't have any trouble recalling the first time you you stroked a power cord while plugged into a big amp. It changes your life. But it gives the vocalist one hell of a task. He or she has to punch through all that, get out over it. I always think of a trumpet or some other type of horn. You need a blaring, sharp tenor or soprano tone to get through, get the song across. Aretha had that trumpet. She punched through just fine. But there's something else there. Listen for yourself, and you can decide whether or not you agree with me. that horn there's this soft growl, this purr, a sensual gorgeous undertone that adds so much drama and power. It's the sound of release, of the joy and freedom that comes only after one has passed through sorrow and pain. <laughs> That's what gives me the chills when I listen to Aretha. saying was to witness what Yates called a terrible beauty a holy blend of truth and unspeakable tragedy a terrible beauty a holy blend preach it Jerry Wexler but elation transcendence these are sadly fleeting things we'll say it once again sometimes the world gets in the way The glow of that afternoon's breakthrough session at Muscle Shoals didn't last. Things quickly took a bad turn. The hard feelings and hard words that escalated into violence. The album would end up getting finished elsewhere. It should be said right here. The men were the ones who fucked this all up. Aretha did nothing that day but do an amazing job. As the session went forward... It became clear to the guys in the control room that they were a part of something incredible. Elated, Wex left the session to call New York and share the news. Someone, accounts uh, vary but it was probably Ted White, produced a celebratory flask of vodka, which started making the rounds. Another bottle started making the rounds, and another. It wasn't long before things started getting ugly between Ted White and one of the horn players. Hard drinking turned quickly to hard words, the kind of words you can't take back. On the spot, Rick fired the trumpeter who dropped the end bomb but it wasn't enough. Ted stormed out of the session, taking Aretha with him. It went from bad to worse. Wex, who was many things, including a great storyteller, takes up the tale. That evening's euphoria turned to horror. It was a Wagnerian shitstorm. Things flying to pieces, everyone going nuts. Back to the motel, it was footsteps, hopping down the hall, air doors slamming, wild cries in the night. I don't know what touched it off. What touched it off was Rick Hall going to Ted's room to try to smooth things over. He just made it worse, and it escalated into yelling and shoving, and then a full-blown fistfight. The following morning, Aretha got on a plane without Ted White. Aretha's marriage to Ted White lasted for two more stormy and abusive years. Aretha has always been reticent, even secretive about her personal life, but in David Ritz's biography, her sisters Irma and Carolyn both agreed the episode in Alabama was the beginning of the end. Back in New York, Wex was beside himself, the pinnacle of his career. His finest hour had suddenly turned to shit. Somehow he had to salvage it, but he couldn't get a hold of Retha. No way, no how. Ten days passed.
0: Mr. Wexler?
1: Yes?
2: It's Miss Franklin calling. I am ready to record. However, I won't be recording in Muscle Shoals. I'll be recording in New York. I know you have
1: studios in New York. Yes, we do. What about the band? Bring up the boys from Muscle
2: Shoals. They understood me. As far as the backgrounds go, I'll be with my sisters. Beautiful.
0: What you want?
1: why we think it's so much more than just a powerful vocal over a kick-ass funky groove. Aretha was no philosopher or essayist or even a poet. She was a soul singer. But she took an Otis Redding song about a man expecting a little loving, his propers when you get home, and turned it inside out into an anthem of women's empowerment. And in doing so, she turned the political into the personal. Jerry Wexler checks in again. Although I'm sure five-and-dime psychologists could write volumes on her reliance on unreliable men, she actually broke the chain of self-pity. Aretha would never again play the part of the scorned woman. Her middle name was Respect. Aretha grew up immersed in the civil rights movement. Her father Cecil was a close friend with Martin Luther King but she was an accidental feminist. How she got there, though, is really not the point. She got there. She got out from under and started running her own singing career. The civil rights struggle and the movement for women's equality have been discussed and analyzed elsewhere in great detail, and for good reason. These are vital and ongoing conversations about the differences between who we are and who we should be about what needs to happen in order to form a more perfect union as it plainly states in the U.S. Constitution. But Aretha reminds us that when it's all said and done, it's simply about respect. You want to receive it, you have to give it a little respect, mister. Let's hear from Jerry Wexler and from Aretha Franklin one final time. I think of Aretha as our Lady of Mysterious Sorrows. Her eyes are incredible, luminous eyes covering inexplicable pain. Her depressions could be as deep as the dark sea. I don't pretend to know the sources of her anguish, but anguish surrounds Aretha as surely as the glory of her musical aura. And the glory of Aretha Franklin's musical aura has empowered three generations and counting of women in rock. Rock belters like Linda Ronstadt, Pat Benatar, pop divas like Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston, and we can draw a straight line from Aretha in 1967 to a current favorite, Adele, in 2016. Sweet soul music, anguish and glory. Heartbreak and freedom distilled, captured and preserved forever. Oh, you, make me feel,
0: you make me feel, you make me feel like a natural woman.
1: I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. Our next show will be something new and different. We're going to shake things up a bit with a very special two-part episode. Hope to see you there. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help.
2: The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Sound by John Michael Barry. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes google play and spotify purchase these great and important tracks all songs clips and references can be found on our show notes please visit rnrap.com for more information it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football